Welcome to Deconstructing Management, a podcast made by college students for college students. We've interviewed the chapter authors of the OpenStax Principles of Management textbook with the intention of bringing each chapter to life. Our goal is to make learning management not suck. Now let's learn a little bit about the interviewee for this chapter. Hello and welcome to the Diversity in Organizations episode with Chapter 12 authors Dr. Jason Lambert and Dr. Joy Leopold. Jason is an award-winning researcher and assistant professor of management in the College of Business at Texas Women's University, where he serves as the chair of the Chancellor's Diversity and Inclusion Council. He also provides diversity consulting with CareerMentorNet.com and is a co-founder at Bizona.com, a tech startup that matches underrepresented small business owners with business experts. Jason received his PhD in business administration from the University of Texas at Arlington. His research investigates how attitudes, values, beliefs, and experiences of members from different identity groups affect work decisions and outcomes. Joy is an assistant professor of media communications at Webster University in St. Louis, Missouri. She graduated from the University of Miami with a PhD in journalism and media management. She studies news media representation of minority and marginalized populations, especially as it relates to acts of resistance and protest, as well as diversity, inclusion, and representation of marginalized communities in the media, business, and civic life. Hello, how are you? Doing well, thank you. How are you? Pretty good. So I wanted to thank you both for joining us today. So we're on the topic of diversity. In the book, we have it referring to the identity-based differences between two or more people that affect their lives. And when you have a group of individuals who share the same type of characteristic, in a sense, those form your diversity groups. And you have the three different types of diversity being surface level, which shows the characteristics of individuals that are visible, which is, for example, you have age, race, sex, and visible disabilities. And then you have deep level, which you have as characteristic that are non-observable, such as values, beliefs, aka like a religion. And then a hidden level you have for characteristic that may be concealed or revealed at the individual's discretion. For instance, you have sexual orientation written down. I have a question. What does diversity mean to you? For me, I feel like diversity, yes, it is a difference between us. It's one of the really differences that make us, you know, really unique and relate to the physical differences between us, but also very much for the identity-based differences that we all have that come from our different perspectives or different experiences to the world. And diversity is what makes things interesting and allows people to come outside of themselves. What diversity means to me I guess is differences that, that matter, differences between people that matter. We know that there are these different types of diversity, there's surface level and there's deep level. So surface level are these salient characteristics like, you know, race, sex, 
Whereas these deep level characteristics might be our personality. It could be maybe our cognitive style of thinking. Some instances I've heard people describe deep level diversity characteristics as maybe your professional background or even expertise, because these are things that also give you multiple perspectives. So the reason I define diversity as differences that matter because as we know from society, and this also translates into the workforce and the workplace, salient characteristics like race, age, gender, and even some like maybe hidden traits like religion and mutable traits, traits that change over time. Maybe someone is transitioning. And so you have transgender employees as well, or someone who, who decides to come out, workers get older over time. These differences are differences that sometimes can create conflict between employees, if not properly managed or mitigated. And also these differences can create innovation and creativity and cognitive flexibility and a whole host of other benefits because it's an opportunity for multiple perspectives uh, to be shared, to create new things. And so for me, diversity is differences that matter because they can matter either and, and relate to negative consequences or positive ones, depending on how well we can leverage and manage diversity in the workforce. And so instead of trying to look at people differently and ignore differences, it's best to celebrate differences instead. Thank you. And then this is for Jason. So since you work consulting with companies and working with that diversity climate change, have you dealt with company heads reacting to this change in workplace diversity? Like, is it encouraged openly outside of that, like advertisement style? Well, I'd say it's always encouraged openly. Mm -hmm. I think maybe some of the challenges working with companies are many leaders and employees have to be educated first to fully accept ways to be inclusive, to fully understand the purpose and understand the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's primarily been the challenge, which is why it sometimes takes a, a while for some of these activities to, to take hold and for organizations, for their culture to change. It also explains why there's backlash that comes from employees and leadership sometimes. And also that explains why sometimes diversity efforts backfire because I think that many organizations and even leaders, either A, they think that we can just easily solve the problem by hiring more minority candidates. And the problem with that is they may not know how to, to source or find the minority candidates. And if that doesn't work, they say, oh, well, they, they don't exist, right? Mm -hmm. Or let's say they are able to fix that level. So they hire some uh, minority candidates, underrepresented employees now, but the employees don't stay, they turn over. And so that's because the organization was not prepped. It was not an inc inclusive environment because people don't realize the same implicit bias, the same attitudes that allow organizations to discriminate, whether that's intentionally or unintentionally because of bad hiring practices. That's going to be the same type of mindset that's inside their culture. So once you hire someone, it's not going to fix the problem. They just turn over because these issues need to be addressed. Organizations have to thaw. They have to unfreeze, be prepared, be educated. You want to galvanize support from all different levels within the company. 
and so grassroots level from leadership and educate people on the pros and cons of diversity and why it matters. Unfortunately, most of the time, even though it's becoming better, one must emphasize the business case for diversity to say that, hey, well, if your workforce doesn't change soon, you're going to lose money based on turnover costs. You could face liability for potential lawsuits. And also over time, your market is going to change your customers. And so that means your employees have to change with them so you can better understand them. But what but I found, especially since uh, the murder of George Floyd, many companies, and there are a lot of companies that are out there with lip service, but I think many companies sincerely have had an awakening. And now when they want someone to come in and address DEI in their organization, they know it for more than just this business case for diversity perspective. I think more companies want to do it because the right thing, of course, it, it impacts their image, their reputation, but I think companies are finally listening to their employees and what employees have been saying all along about not being heard, not having a seat at the table or a voice or being involved with decision-making. And by doing so, it'll actually help the business in the long run too. Now, that's some of the main challenges I see like as a practitioner coming in. For example, just something as simple as coming out with a statement to su support social injustice or to condemn police brutality against uh, black people, to condemn racism and brutality against Asian American Pacific Islanders, the API community. Companies have a struggle trying to figure out what to say, what not to say, because you can't please everyone all the time. And so sometimes if it's, you know, challenges like that arise because they're thinking of the bottom line when sometimes it's not important to think of bottom line. It's important to just focus on, you know, what's right. So then for Joy in regards to like that business aspect, news-wise and media, do you think companies have been held accountable for their diversity and discrimination in the workplace? Yeah, so I do think that companies have been held accountable at times for their discrimination against people. I know in recent years, companies have been held accountable for the statements that they have made publicly surrounding diversity and inclusion, their beliefs about the value of diversity and things like that. And then it seems like a lot of consumers have sort of called companies out for not really being truthful about their efforts. So a company might release a statement saying, we value diversity and we believe all humans should be treated equally. But then you'll notice that on their social media pages, everybody looks the same in terms of race, in terms of sex or gender, in terms of body size, things like that. And you may notice that companies are releasing these statements, but then their executive boards are homogenous, so the people in positions of power and things like that. So a lot of times there has been this sort of public reckoning where consumers notice that companies are not really being 100% truthful about how they feel about diversity and how important diversity is. But I also think on an internal level, when there have been things going on in companies that are bad for some reason, that are discriminatory, for example, I think people are more and more empowered to speak out against those things, to bring lawsuits or file claims to make sure that they're being fairly treated in the workplace. So you kind of see it on both sides. Internally, employees are a bit more empowered to speak out 
And externally, consumers are telling companies, this is what we have as an expectation for you. A little bit ago, I went to Target and for the first time in like, I don't think ever, I looked at the top sections where they have advertising and I had seen so many different like background, like race people, a lot of women, people with disabilities. I told my boyfriend at the time, I was like, oh my goodness, there's a mix of people on, <laughs> on these pictures. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I would think, you know, in one of my classes, I recently did diversity as a media revision. And one of the things were that, you know, just very recently, Target started hiring children with disabilities to model. Like, that's going to be very recent, you know, within the past few years. And there, there's been such a positive response because children with disabilities being close to, and there's parents who have kids with disabilities who are shopping and want to see their kids represented, and their kids want to see themselves represented. It really matters. Yeah. And then with the inclusion of different people, they had mentioned in the chapter the possibility for blind recruiting. I kind of wondered if you're blind recruiting, how does that change your attitude towards the actual recruitment process? If you're trying to hit that, I guess, quota for diversity for your workplace, could you give some background, Jason, for if you've experienced this at all or if you've given advice or seen this in uh, general with companies? My only knowledge of this is based on the research that we've done where I know there's some symphonies that use blind auditioning and they found that by having performers uh, audition behind a screen or a curtain, it increased their gender diversity, the number of women musicians that they hired. I read another article that talked about the interviews and people regarding that experience and how it, it can be subtle things like when someone walks up to audition, even with the screen, you can maybe tell if someone's wearing high heel shoes versus other shoes. And so these subtle things can always influence our decision-making with bias. I know for a while, some of the tech companies, I'm not sure which ones were trying to experiment with masking, identifiable indicators, descriptors on resumes. Oh, like uh, the names, they take those off. Like names, things like zip codes, if someone had them on there. So it makes it more difficult to ascertain their sex or, or their race or something like that. And as you know, there's a famous study by Bertrand and Mulnathan where they uh, manipulated the names of resumes and they found that white sounding names got significantly more called by black sounding names. And so I guess that's where that blind recruiting experiment that they're doing in tech comes from, being able to mask those names, mask those identifiers so that people can make decisions in a more objective way. I've posed that as recommendations in all of our workshops and I've talked to leaders, but you need to have resources to do that. And also it's difficult. It's a paradigm shift in thinking about the way we recruit. Like you said, does that change some people's minds? So far when I've recommended it, no one to say, yeah, we're going to do that idea. And I think a lot of it has to do with the resources involved. There's additional training. You have to re-educate everyone as to why you're doing this, but the end of the day is that it's not always about a quota. Mm -hmm. It's about also just trying to recruit in the best manner that casts a wide enough net so that underrepresented candidates are also caught in that net so they can even be considered for employment. What happens is companies, they don't look for candidates in the right places. They just look at them in the traditional place where they go. They recruitment ads, if they don't update them and People don't look like themselves when they talk to recruiters, when they see job ads, then they're less likely to even apply for that job. I know I'm like that. I look at a job, I go to an interview and 
if there aren't enough people who look like me, then I question their value towards diversity because they're not taking those steps, that effort. Because you have to intentionally promote diversity, equity, inclusion. Otherwise, you'll unintentionally discriminate against those and leave some people out. So you have to intentionally include, otherwise you're going to intentionally exclude. So recruitment, we have a ways to go. We have a ways to go to improve the situation, in my opinion. And part of why it's so dangerous is that over time, that our organization starts to look like a whole bunch of the same people. You know, I think in the book, we talked about the, what well, is similarity attraction paradigm is also this model called attraction similarity attrition model. And what that means is that you attract the same people, then those who don't feel included, they leave. And over time, if it's not fixed or like intentionally anything done about it, then you have a homogenous group who all think the same way. And that means that over time, you're going to be a less innovative company as well. You're going to end up with group think right there. Yeah. And, uh, yes. So you ended up mentioning one of the theories. So you had in the book, three different types that were highlighted in there, the cognitive diversity hypothesis, the similarity attraction paradigm and social identity theory that you just talked about. And then the third one that you had pointed out was the justification suppression model. Can you give some example of those three theories at all? Yeah. Let's start with social cognitive theory. Basically when we talk about social cognitive theory. That's when we uh, categorize information in order to process it more easily because uh, there's so much stimuli in the world. So in order for our brain to process it, it's easier for us to make categorize it, understand patterns. So that then we can make decisions easier. Stemming from the way that we were hunters and gatherers, it was very important for us to quickly identify if someone was a friend or enemy. The way we could do that was based on our experiences, how well we know our environment, things like that. So then we form assumptions. So social cognitive theory, and as it relates to diversity, we talk about the cognitive diversity theory hypothesis. There's also the social identity theory. And these two theories really in my opinion, explain a lot of how diversity plays its role in the workplace because the cognitive diversity hypothesis says that we have these multiple perspectives that we'll be able to make better uh, decision-making, problem-solving abilities because we have these multiple perspectives, multiple ways to think of a problem. Social identity theory, on the other hand, still stemming from social cognitive theory and also like schema theory basically says that because we use patterns of information in order to understand our world better, that we sometimes break things into in-group, out-group dynamics. And so one of the reasons why it's so challenging to manage diversity in organizations, why it backfires sometimes, which is unfortunate because then some leaders give up, some leaders don't think that it works. I've even heard some people say, well, homogenous teams are better, right? But it's because that as leaders, we have to be able to manage those two differences, be able to leverage the cognitive diversity, the multiple perspectives of these different people who have beliefs, different values, and different attitudes. So against the fact that because they have these differences, they can easily clash instead, which is where social identity theory comes in, this in-group versus out-group. And so how do you find that balance, if you will, is what's most important. Those are two examples of how those theories are in play, especially in work when we're trying to uh, make decisions where we could have great ideas or we never get a chance to talk. 
you missed one other theory, right? You got overcognitive uh, justification suppression. Justification suppression model. It essentially states that we all have some sort of bias, right? And nowadays we kind of know this. When it first came out, I think it was that theory, it was maybe lesser known, but we know now we have implicit bias. And justification suppression model says that depending on our environment and the context of a given situation, we will either justify the bias that we hold or we can suppress it. So, cause we're not hunters and gatherers anymore and we've evolved as human beings, right? We, we have the werewolf. So. No, yeah, we hope so. Yeah. But as we know, that's not the case for everyone, unfortunately, but we should be able to know the difference between right and wrong and be able to value people for who they are as a person and not based on their salient characteristics. But sometimes we suppress it because it's natural to have bias. That's some, that's one thing that people don't understand. Everyone has bias. That doesn't necessarily mean we're automatically a racist or we hate other identity groups. Yes, there are racists though. <laughs> there are people who are racist, but sometimes bias is a matter of, I like apples versus oranges or something like that. At the end of the day, it's all fruit. So sometimes that, that suppression doesn't hold. For example, time pressures. First example that comes to my mind, I can't think of his name right now, but he was a comedian. He used to be on Seinfeld. Maybe it's best for me to not say his name. But he was a comedian. He used to be on the show Seinfeld. He was doing a stand-up act. It wasn't going so well. And he got mad and he called someone in the audience, used the N-word. Okay. Was he a racist or not? In my opinion, in my book, if you use the N-word, you're probably a racist. But I can assume that he basically had a meltdown. And so that regulatory mechanism for uh, suppression wasn't there. And so... What happens is he justified his behavior. He felt like, oh, that's a person who's the N-word, right? And so time pressures can lead to this where sometimes a bad experience with one person and then we begin to associate that bad experience with an entire identity group. So we have stereotypes that can allow us to sometimes act on our biases, our prejudices. And, and that's how the justification suppression model usually takes hold. In the weight discrimination research, they use justification suppression model often as well, because sometimes attitudes towards people who are overweight, negative attitudes are based on this justification that, oh, well, it's their choice to be overweight, mm -hmm. right? because they eat the wrong foods or what have you. So people feel like they're justified in having these negative attitudes. When we know now that it's not always about what we eat or our lack of exercise, everyone is made differently. You know, some people have a lower metabolism than other people. As we get older, our body changes, but people tend to justify these negative attitudes because of their belief that it's a choice instead. So sometimes the beliefs also play a strong role and whether we justify or suppress some of our biases towards different groups of people. Okay. So Joy, how important is that role with HR? And do you think their department is really critical with the fight for diversity in the workplace? The HR department is extremely critical. And so having an HR department, having even just one HR professional, if you don't have an HR department, is really, really important. One of the main things that makes an HR person, professional or department really, really important is that the HR person can really set the tone of the company. And they can do that by making sure that the employees are aware of 
the expectations as they relate to diversity. So what kind of behaviors are and are not allowed, what kind of expectations that the company may have for their employees and also for themselves. And so one of the main things that I've seen in um, companies when there's problems, there's a lot of sort of things that can happen that lead up to an actual problem later on down the road. And so if employees are made aware from the beginning, their rights in a particular situation, the expectations that they can have from their workplace, that includes the behavior of their coworkers and the behavior of their managers and things like that. If they know about those things from the beginning, they're much more empowered to say, oh, hey, this happened and it shouldn't have way before it gets to the point where there may be a case filed or there may be a lawsuit filed. So the HR department is really important and really crucial in making sure that employees are aware of things right from the beginning of setting and maintaining standards, making sure that the company policies are easily accessible, publicly available. They really set the tone for how diversity is treated within an organization. Jason, while you were working with different companies, did you ever get to see a specific benefit that really popped out or that was significantly reoccurring when uh, a company ended up diversifying their workforce? So the question was, what type of benefits they experienced from diversifying their workforce? That's a great question. I'd say like cognitive flexibility, which translates into system-wide flexibility throughout the organization, because just the fact that organizations embark upon uh, a journey to make their organization more inclusive through the process, they're learning so much more. They're connecting dots that they never connected before. Many may not have even know that the dots were there to be connected in the first place. Right. And I think what happens is that that transfers throughout the rest of the organization. So when you're able to think differently about your workforce and in terms of race, sex, and gender, then it also helps you to think differently about other things in your organization as well. So it's about practicing a different way of thinking like metacognition. Thinking about what you think about constantly. So many entrepreneurs, they do this on a regular basis, but I think most people, they don't feel they have to do that when it comes to their workforce, because some leaders might view their workforce as expendable or they don't realize that HR and your employees, they really like the gatekeepers for your company because who your company is, who your people are. If I could think of another one example, I'll pop back in. Joy. Yeah. So I was thinking about a lot of times we think about diversity and we often think about race or gender, but one of the areas that's often overlooked is actually disability. And a lot of the times companies can do what's called a reasonable accommodation. And so that reasonable accommodation is that an employee with a disability can still do the job responsibilities. It just changes how the job gets done. And then usually a reasonable accommodation is a super easy change. It's not expensive and it ends up making things easier for everyone involved. And so I actually have an example from a different chapter that I was working on. I'm just going to read it from this chapter. 
it says, one of the examples that we have is a large grocery store that was considering hiring an applicant with Down syndrome and mild hearing loss as a stock person. This manager was concerned about the applicant that he might not be able to hear the paging loudspeaker system that's used to call specific employees to specific areas in the store. The work accommodation that was designed for this applicant was a small vibrating personal pager that was worn on the wrist or the waist. And it was purchased for the applicant to use. And when the signal goes off, the applicant will go immediately to the front office for specific instructions on where to go and what is needed in the store. And so the other benefits for that is that the management is now considering purchasing these pagers for all of the employees for times when the loudspeaker doesn't work or when there are a lot of customers in the store, which would make it hard for everyone to hear. And so this reasonable accommodation ended up improving the efficiency of all the employees rather than just only the employee that it was actually designed for. And so that's a result of diversity that can end up helping everybody by being more inclusive. One of the main advantages in a diverse workplace is a diversity of thought, diversity of ideas, um, and collaboration that comes from people with different perspectives being empowered to work together, to make suggestions, to ask questions. And so companies that have a diverse workforce are the ones that are consistently more profitable. They have more product innovation and they're usually leaders in whatever marketplace that they operate. And so, of course, there is a bit of a a sort of like a learning curve. And so what you might see as a company begins to increase their diversity efforts, all those great characteristics that I just mentioned, as the team sort of gets a little bit more comfortable with each other, at first they're uncomfortable if they're maybe around people that they're not used to, being exposed to things that they're not accustomed to, they might be uncomfortable, they might feel reserved, but as they become more comfortable, then it it skyrockets. So there's a small dip that then turns into a huge increase in all of those tangible and intangible assets that a company can have. Again, idea creation and things like that, but also products and, and productivity, right? Having those human assets and having it be as diverse as possible really does have a benefit overall for companies and corporations. Challenges can occur when trying to implement diversity in the workforce. One type is lower organization attachment. This occurs in the workplace when diversity program attracts minority groups. And then at the same time, it's deterring a non-minority group and they feel alienated or targeted. So Jason, what kind of challenges have arised with either companies or cases you've worked on? Has anything happened where the benefit hasn't shown with this change of diversity in the workplace? I can't speak to personally anyone I've worked with. But I can generally discuss some of the challenges for increasing diversity in in the workplace. And you touched on some of those, such as increased absenteeism, disengagement. And what we find is that when companies um, make efforts to increase the diversity, equity, and inclusion, there's a higher turnover among mostly white men. It can be greater conflict, so dysfunctional conflict. So this is conflict that's related to personal issues or attitudes, beliefs versus functional conflicts, what you want, where this conflict over the task at hand, where they're bringing their, their different perspectives to the task. But instead, if this conflict based on differences, then that's not very productive. 
some other challenges when you try and introduce diversity into organizations is that some employees, when they're hired, they might be perceived as the token employee or a quote unquote diversity hire. And so, and all these challenges are, in my opinion, be mitigated. I think what happens is in popular news, we always hear that diversity works. Diversity is like a panacea for fixing things. If you want your workforce smarter, hire more blank, fill in the blank. But the reality is that all that is true, but you have to have the proper work environment. You have to have the right leadership so that you can work through that other dysfunctional conflict that you also invite into your organization. Diversity is absolutely needed and it absolutely improves firm performance, return on investment, problem solving. This research shows this, but if you really look at the research, there's also some other factors that help to kind of, let me say, leverage that diversity. So there's some research by uh, Orlando Richard. He does a lot of research on firm performance. And he shows that when firms are more diverse, culturally diverse, and also firms that have more women, for example, on their boards, they perform better. But it also is based on the context of that firm. So if you're a firm that is using an innovative strategy, meaning that you really focused on research and development, you're focused on creating new products all the time, then you have such a stronger impact that diversity has on that organization. Because as we know, multiple perspectives are at play. So it makes sense. The companies that value that, they know that that's something that they have to focus on. Versus if you just look at organizations in general and not take into account the strategy or the style of the leadership team, then sometimes we'll find that diversity can, can backfire for all those things that I mentioned earlier. But there are some tips though, it's simple things like managing by walking around helps leaders identify microaggressions because you know, your employees, you know, subtle changes in their behaviors. And so you're able to kind of get in front of any conflict before it erupts, mm -hmm. having your employee research groups, your affinity groups, having resources for your employees where they can go to an ombudsperson or someone for even self-help for emotional and psychological help, especially with so many employees that are experiencing trauma because of a lot of the events uh, that have occurred this year. Yeah, uh, a lot of companies have had those reach out programs where you can talk to someone and you need time off to kind of digest what's been going on, like in this past year specifically too. That's definitely something I've noticed in the workplace and they've reached out to, to people about it. Training, I also think it's a bad rap. I've read a lot of stuff recently that says that diversity training doesn't work. I've been seeing that lately now, or diversity training needs to be fixed. And there's a whole history of how diversity training has evolved and it has improved to be more inclusive of everyone. But I think sometimes we see these headlines because organizations, that's all they do is diversity training. So of course it's not going to work because you haven't, you know, fixed some of the systemic issues as well. But these are some things that, you know, it's a triangulated approach that companies need to do all of these things in order to improve at their organization. If you were in, in marketing, you're not going to just use social media only, right? You're going to use social media, you're going to use TV, if you can afford it, radio, put up flyers. Same thing applies to when we're trying to change the culture of organization to be more inclusive. You have to use multiple approaches.
not a one size fits all. Every company is different and you need to know that and be patient as well. You're not going to get a return immediately, but you will have an improvement and over time it'll impact the bottom line of your company too in a positive way. That's good to hear that there's other types of issues, specifically discrimination in the workplace. When you had mentioned age, disability, national origin, pregnancy, for instance, sex and religion. And you talked about even some experience access discrimination, which you have as people who are denied employment because of their identity group or characteristics and then treatment discrimination, where after a person's hired, they're treated differently. And so reverse and covert are other types of discrimination that happen to be either misunderstood or unheard of. Could you possibly explain a little bit more on what these are? And do you have an example that you could say to about that? So reverse discrimination is really a phrase, a term that I feel like has become more popular recently. The idea is that somebody who is in a majority position, so for example, a white person or a man, might feel like they are being discriminated against for their majority status, right? And so that there might be like, for example, some vendetta against men. And so a company would choose not to hire men. And so what we see is that's illegal, first of all. It's just as illegal as any other form of discrimination. And two, that it it doesn't happen as much as you might think that it does from the amount of conversation that we have about reverse discrimination. So one example that I can think of that actually could fall under that category is you might be familiar with restaurants that traditionally have an all-female waitstaff and they might be dressed scantily clad or whatever. And the idea is that the clientele of those restaurants come in because they want to see these women. They want these women to be their servers. And so there have been cases where companies like that, restaurants like that have, you know, not hired men, not hired male servers, hired men for other positions, but not let them be waitstaff. And that's discrimination. It's illegal. And people have won cases against companies when they have engaged in that type of behavior. So people are protected against discrimination, employment discrimination, no matter what their status is, whether they are a minority group member or not. On the other hand, what we see a lot with people who feel as though they're experiencing reverse discrimination is actually leveling of the playing field. So People who are used to privilege feel as though they're being discriminated against, feel as though they're being, they're having something taken away from them when resources are distributed in a more equitable way. That's not really discrimination, but of course, it may feel like that to the person who's experiencing it. In terms of covert discrimination, it's a little bit different. And so the two terms are covert and overt. And so they have this idea that discrimination is this angry, evil, shouting thing that's in your face, right? But a lot of it's not that. It's a lot of that's behind the scenes. So I think the example that I use from some positions in different industries that we think of as a role for a certain group of people. So I think the example was in hotels. Say we have two applicants, one who's a man, one who's a woman. And so They both apply, they send in a general application at a hotel. They're looking for a job and they're willing to do whatever's available. And so even though you don't need a particular skill set to be 
the, the housekeeper at a hotel and you don't need a particular skill set beyond being able to drive maybe to be the valet. You don't need a particular skill set to be the bellhop, right? The person who takes the luggage upstairs. What you see is that the applications from women, they're funneled into these positions like housekeeper, like the receptionist, the hostess. And then the male applicants are funneled into these positions of these sort of customer facing service positions like driving the car, the valet, or the the bellhop, things like that. And so what then ends up happening is that the bellhop who brings your suitcase upstairs, you give him a $5 tip, right? And you give the valet $5. But the housekeeper who comes in while you're not there cleans up and then leaves before you get back does not get a house tip. You don't tip the receptionist for checking you in and handing you your hotel key. And so that creates this system of inequality between the male and the female staff members, even though that wasn't the intent of anybody at any level. It's just something that happens because of the society that we live in, um, because we're used to these things happening. We're used to that being the different structure of the jobs. But again, those differences are not based on anything real. They're not based on real skills or real needs for the job. And so seeing that women are funneled into some jobs that end up getting paid less and valued less, and men are funneled into jobs that end up getting paid more and valued more, it would be an example of a sort of discriminatory effect that's behind the scenes in a covert way. And then also this section talks about the EEOC. Can either one of you quickly explain what that is and why it's an important role with diversifying your workplace? When the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, brought into legislation, this organization was created to uh, help enforce civil rights. They govern the laws, enforce those laws. They also govern, especially government organizations, things in the federal sector, for example. They're a place you can go to if you believe that you've experienced some sort of workplace or hiring discrimination. You can file a complaint. They investigate those. And violence that they believe have merit, they will actively um, pursue. This is very helpful, especially if people have experienced some sort of discrimination, because in order to, I mean, it basically costs money, right? To sue a company and many reasons why some challenges with identifying discriminatory practices occurs because people are afraid to speak up, people afraid that they'll lose their job. And also people don't have the resources or the means in order to pursue litigation. So the EOC enforces the law and it also is a resource that people can go to if they need assistance, trying to investigate if they have a valid claim for discrimination as well. You're both a wealth of knowledge over here. <laughs> and then 12.6 talked about benefits and challenges of workplace diversity. And there are three specifically for those perspectives that were listed. The integration learning perspective, which is the differences that make up a group that can be a value resource in the context of work groups. The access and uh, legitimacy perspective, benefit that a diverse workforce uh, can bring to a business that equally wishes to operate within the diverse set of markets or culturally diverse clients. And the third one was the discrimination fairness perspective, a belief that a culturally diverse workforce and moral duty must be maintained in order to create a just and fair society. Jason, can you tell me 
why it's important altogether to know about these differences between three perspectives. I like to tell leaders that they want to take a look in the mirror and first of all, know which organization they are. Many companies, we want to strive to be the integration and learning company that has that perspective, right? I'd say from my experience and also just looking at news media, I think most, most companies right now are in the access and legitimacy perspective. Not only are they doing the right thing, following the law, there's fairness and discrimination, but they're trying to leverage diversity in order to gain market share. Integration and learning is when you truly have equity and inclusion. So you have people of color, you have transgender individuals, you have other underrepresented people who are in positions of influence, decision-making, they're engaged so that your employees, when you hire them, they're not just there as like, for example, a carrot on a stick to be able to capture market share that looks like those employees, but you also value the input from underrepresented employees so that you don't make marketing gaffes. Like for example, the company that was selling these keychains and looked like little blackface dolls. Mm -hmm. H&M had a model of a, a, a young black boy mm-hmm. with a t-shirt or a sweatshirt that said like coolest monkey to drink like, something like that. Right. Yeah. Recently I saw a KFC fist. There was a drumstick and then the shadow was a black lives matter fist or so it was a similar fist. Mm-hmm. This is to celebrate uh, independence day in one of the countries in Africa. So these things happen. If you don't have that integration and learning perspective, you make these mistakes because like I mentioned before, we all have bias. We all have mistakes. We all have our, our perceptions of the world. What we've been trained to believe from our parents, from our peers, sometimes on religion. And so these things happen. And so that's the difference between those three perspectives and some of the consequences of not knowing uh, what perspective your organization holds. Otherwise, employees are making decisions from this perspective and it'll reflect on the reputation of the organization. Okay. And then you talked about it was the access and legitimacy perspective joy. I know you've been keeping up with news events and specifically this past year with all these movements that have been going on. I personally have noticed that uh, a lot of companies are showing up as uh, listing. For instance, I think it's Ulta has like a list and other companies that show which brands are black owned have you noticed that there's like a trend where they're focusing more on informing who they're buying from that they want this equality being shown at all. So actually, this is really relevant to something that I was covering in class last week. And so I'm teaching a media diversity and society class. And so we were talking about advertising. And so in a much different way than news, advertising is really kind of an art form because there's a lot of creativity involved and people can really push boundaries. And so what you actually see is that a lot of the advertising that is is coming out today is a lot more inclusive and a lot more intentional about who's in it, who's included, who's represented and how. And on the back end of that, you actually see companies making real efforts to do things that will impact society in a positive way in a long-term fashion. So it's one thing to have an advertising campaign that has a bunch of different races and ages. It's another thing to say, we're going to make sure that 50% of the artists or the agencies that we work with are minority owned. And so on one end, you're 
showing your customers, hey, look, we can hire uh, minority talent to sell you our products. On the other end, you're saying, no, I'm going to make a real investment in minority talent by giving them the resources to be creative, to push boundaries, giving them the, the power to really change what we do from an inside way. And so I have seen that as people grow and learn about our society, about different people, different experiences, there is that desire to be more inclusive at the individual level. And people are more concerned about these things and they're looking to companies to show that they care about those things as well. And the companies, in some cases, are really stepping up. So that, and it brings us to the last section, which uh, was the recommendations and managing diversity. So I kind of wanted to leave this open for both of you to give some advice for not only like employees, individuals, but also if anyone is actually in the management role and is looking to just be better with diversity and being more aware of it. I would say, I think more leaders of organizations should appreciate data. Okay. I'll talk to companies and we talk about surveys, sometimes they get scared when it comes to surveying to understand what are the current perceptions your employees hold about climate of diversity for your company right now. But it's a good starting point because for those who are on the fence, don't really understand why we need to like change what we're doing. It, you know, this, it, it provides evidence for why we need to change what you're doing. When you look at surveys that capture if they recognize that there are some best practices in place, they recognize that diversity is signaled throughout the organization. If they have experienced microaggressions or being differentially treated, and when you're in the leadership position, sometimes you're so far removed that you don't really understand how uh, difficult the problem has become. And usually if you're in a leadership position and you're at the point where you hear the rumblings of employees that, that are upset who don't feel included, that means it's been brewing for a long time, right? So you want to get in front of that in the very beginning. So I think surveying is important. You want to be in touch with your employees and then that data will also help you enact change within your organization. Like, would you go to them and ask them, put out an actual survey? <laughs> oh yeah. No, I mean an actual survey. When you first ask employees, you have to build trust and employees may not be willing to to be transparent and share what they believe. So you want to give them a sense of anonymity, confidentiality. Okay. And one of the ways to do that is this baseline measure with the survey. Now, of course, before that, you, you want to have leaders in place, maybe create a grassroots team, people from all different levels of the company who can sit on this committee and they can be those representatives for your employees and also signals the importance and value for the work that the company's about to do in these efforts. But if you just immediately go into asking employees, some employees are not going to speak up, but the survey is a way to do that. And, and you want to do that with a third party as well, because many people are going to think that, oh, if, if you're administering the survey yourself, they may not trust that their answers will be confidential or may not assume the anonymity. And there are some other tips for doing this too, you know, so that people cannot be identified. But to me, I think data is one of the first, one of the important things and a starting point. Because then you won't know what training you need. You won't know what policies you need to change because every company is different. Okay. Thank you. Do you have any tips for an, an employee 
who might feel uncomfortable, whether it's like sexual harassment, like racial wise discrimination, or even like disability discrimination that they want to go to their, maybe their boss about, but maybe they feel uncomfortable with that. At that point, is it an appropriate step to go towards like HR or is there like a typical, if they're unaware of it, like way to go about that type of informing someone? I just want to say, don't be afraid to speak up mm-hmm. because, you know, part of the reason why these, these challenges and organizations have persisted so long are because people don't set up, but organizations are designed. They don't want you to speak up, right? They don't want you to share your salary information with your coworkers because there's disparities in pay. There's the wage gap, right? They don't want you to know about legislation that exists so that you know your rights. Me and my colleague are working on the uh, workshop now. This is the first time we've done that, like introduced key legislation and a lot of diversity trainings that I've attended. It's a lot of great content, but very few even discuss legislation, probably because it's boring <laughs> to sit through a bunch of different laws. But, you know, the first time we've done that feedback has been, well, I never knew this. I never knew about, for example, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. I never knew Title VII of Civil Rights Act covered all these things, right? And so many employees don't know their rights. And so that's also part of the problem why they're afraid to speak up. And so discrimination persists in organizations. Know that there is a due process for you to have your voice heard and have your issue resolved. And now in this climate that we're in right now, I think that most people really will have some support if they face discrimination at work. And so you're not doing this just for you yourself, but do this for those who come after you and everyone else who is uh, experiencing some sort of injustice in the workplace. Yeah. Know your rights, know, know the laws. Okay. Thank you. No, that definitely was uh, insightful. You've been listening to Deconstructing Management, a podcast made by college students for college students. Be sure to check the show notes for resources related to this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.